0: Welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. as well, we return to Haggai, look for chapter 2. We've already read verses one through nine. That was last last Sunday. So I won't reread this entire passage again. Haggai 2, verses 1 through 9 is where we will be. But rather I would like to begin by reading four critical verses uh, from Malachi chapter 3. That'd be just two books more to your right. Uh, Malachi, the last book in the New Testament. I'm going to read just just a a few pivotal verses, uh, four of them from there. Malachi is the the last book, the final book in the Old Testament before God's prophets went silent. Uh, Prophecy went dormant for about 450 years after Malachi prophesied. Still after Malachi, there were non-prophetic or non-inspired prophets Writings called the Apocrypha, if you've heard of that, uh, which serve sort of like American history books. Uh, they they partially document those 450 years when the prophets were silent, uh, but the Jews never accepted the Apocrypha as a divinely inspired source. Nor do we. The Jews realized this is not scripture, but they're helpful books in history. And yet, that Apocrypha does document how Israel was very troubled that God had not been speaking to Israel and had not sent a prophet to them for centuries. But though prophecy had been silent, God did not leave his people without his written voice as a clear expectation. It included a clear expectation for Israel. And in verses 1 through 4 in Malachi 3, uh, they prepare Israel for what, or rather, who they should expect. As I read, the first messenger referenced is John the Baptist. Uh, The second messenger that is referenced, the messenger of the covenant, is the Lord Jesus himself, who will come to his temple, Malachi says. And when he does, Christ is going to treat that believing element in Israel like gold and silver. He's going to purify them as God's very own possession. Reading from verse 1, Malachi chapter 3 says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, that's John the Baptist, And he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, this Messiah, behold, he is coming, says Malachi, uh, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap. He will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. So that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. So here already, at uh, 600 years, almost 600 years before Christ, under the old covenant, uh, we expect that at least some Jews will become a possession of Christ under the new covenant. Because Christ is the messenger of a new covenant and they are here described as gold and silver that is refined now just to let you in on a little secret here they aren't literally gold and silver All right. No, this metaphor indicates they are very precious to Christ uh, so he sends them through a through a process of purification And if you belong today to Christ through faith, then you and I are in a similar process right now. We are gold and silver. Malachi also tells Israel to expect the Lord will enter his temple. That is the second temple that Israel is building at the time of Haggai. Uh, As a messenger, a messenger of the covenant, as a messenger... He will declare the inauguration of a long-awaited new covenant. Jeremiah promised it. Ezekiel promised it. Daniel promised it. Isaiah promised it. Malachi promised it. And Haggai promises it. That's just a small sampling. So you get the picture. Israel was not, was not unaware of what God was going to do. And Christ, who suddenly comes to his temple, of course he's going to cleanse whips and cords, uh, he is the messenger of this new covenant. It, it, that is not that hard, not that hard for us to understand. And as we return to Haggai chapter 2, God promises in verse 9... This new covenant that Jesus will announce will bring God a greater glory than that of the old covenant. That that is right. Our passage contains a contrast between the old covenant ratified at Mount Sinai and the new covenant ratified on a cross at Mount Calvary. You may have heard an old hymn. It was called Up Calvary's Mountain. Anybody ever heard that? I don't know the tune well of it, but it goes like this. Up Calvary's Mountain, one dreadful morn, walked Christ my Savior weary and worn, facing for sinners death on a cross, that he might save them from endless loss. Folks, you cannot improve on that. You cannot improve on the gospel through the new covenant. It's a greater glory. And just like we repeatedly see in the New Testament, we see this again and again in the New Testament, verses 1 through 9 offer a contrast In Haggai, between the two covenants. As we departed last week, I promised, well, we would make a return to God's promise, as it is called, described in verse 5. It is there that we read As for the promise which I made to you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. God's spirit did abide with Israel as they came out of Egypt. A pillar of cloud, of a cloud by day, a column of fire by night. And God reminds this group now, my presence never left you. That should be an encouragement to us. As, as the readers or the, those hearing Haggai said, but I don't see them. Nonetheless, we are told God is with us. And and the promise that was made when Israel came out of Egypt, it it refers to the old covenant that was ratified at Mount Sinai. Um, At at that very moment, at that moment, in Exodus 25 and verse 8, God commanded Israel, this was a command, ready? The giving of the old covenant let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. Through the prophet Haggai, this post-exilic Israel, the ones who've returned to the land, uh, they are here reminded that they, well, they're repeating God's same command to build. They're, They're building a second temple. Prepare a sanctuary For me, that I might dwell among you. Uh, Through our own study of Haggai, as the church in this age, we see that Christ's church is also reminded that we are building a temple. and We join into a building process of God's temple or sanctuary where God dwells among believers in dwelling us Where the Holy Spirit wants to dwell. And God again says, Build me a temple that I might dwell with you. Uh, Through the gospel, build me a sanctuary. Preach the gospel. So then, Christians recognize that we are a temple of God, we are gold and silver being refined. How often do we sing? O Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary pure and holy, tried and true. With thanksgiving I'll be a living sanctuary for you. Verse 5 describes the promise that that God says that, that I made you. In, in the Hebrew, literally, you'll have a flag note on this. God says the promise that I cut with you. As in the cutting of the covenant. That promise that I cut with you at Sinai. And we all know what happened when God ratified that old covenant with Moses. What did God do? Oh, he shook the earth. He shook it violently. The people of Israel were in fear for the shaking of Sinai. Uh, That happened immediately, by the way, before the giving of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 19 verse 18 says that now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. The book of Judges chapter 5 assures the mountains quaked at the presence of the Lord. This Sinai at the presence of the Lord, the God of Israel. So for Haggai's purposes, God's giving of the old covenant is definitely the occasion that prompted that first shaking of the earth. And I'll be careful. Haggai does not mean to suggest that God has never, on any other occasion, uh, had an earthquake or caused an earthquake and shaken the ground uh, and caused the earth to quake. We know that God surely has. Rather, Haggai is specifically recounting for Israel, how the earth shook that first time. And that is in reference to to God's promise via the old covenant, the giving of the covenant. Therefore, when Haggai declares that God is going to shake the earth once more, in verse 6, that doesn't suggest the earth will only ever quake once more. Anybody here ever lived in California? No, in, in context... You're, you're smart people. Help me out here. In context, what do you think God is going to do once more in a little while? It's pretty easy. God is going to ratify a covenant again In a little while. That that is a new covenant. He says, I'm going to do it again. And when does God shake the heavens and the earth one more time? Well, it's when the sinless Lamb of God was slain for the sins of all who would believe in Him, when God ratified that new covenant. And when Christ died, Did the earth shake? Did witnesses of that new covenant also, as Israel had centuries early, did they tremble in fear? Boy, did they ever. Listen to Matthew 27 and verse 50. We read, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice, and yielded up his spirit, and behold... The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the temples, uh, out of the tombs. After his resurrection, they entered the holy city and, and appeared to many. Now the centurion, says Matthew, and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, they became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Folks, in verses 6 through 9, Haggai describes events at the dawn of a new covenant on Mount Calvary, and the sacrifice of Christ as the heavens and earth shook once more. Since Haggai says, well, only once more, uh, do we expect any future covenants? No. No. The old covenant, that relied on the blood of bulls and goats, Uh, that is superseded Hebrews says it is deemed obsolete, uh, once the new covenant is ratified by the blood of Jesus. Folks, Christ is the greater glory. The New Testament writer of Hebrews quotes Haggai. He says this God's voice shook the earth then, but now he is promised, saying, Yet once more I will, not, I, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, says the writer of Hebrews, yet once more denotes the removal of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Folks, the things that remain that cannot be shaken, that's us. That's us. And the writer of Hebrews concludes his first century argument, writing probably late 60s A.D. The writer of Hebrews concludes his first century argument using the present tense. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude. Here's an essential observation. When the writer of Hebrews cites Haggai, and insists we receive a kingdom that cannot be shaken. It's written in the Greek present tense and active voice, which indicates that something it is something that had already occurred in the first century. And the active voice says it continues to occur over a period of time. Let's bring a Greek scholar in. John Calvin is his name. Calvin says concerning the writer of Hebrews quote he only infers from the shaking of the heaven and the earth that the state of the world was to be changed at the coming of Christ for things created they're subject to decay but Christ's kingdom is eternal then all then all creatures essential needs are brought into a better state writes Calvin He he makes hence a transition to another exhortation that we are to lay hold on that kingdom which cannot be shaken for the Lord shakes us, says Calvin, for this end that he may really and forever establish us in himself. Folks, Jesus is shaking the world. He is sifting the world. And since this passage applies to, well, the writer of Hebrews in the first century and John Calvin uh, about the 16th century and us, it applies to equally, uh, wouldn't you maybe also think that it is probably when the repentance for forgiveness of sins is proclaimed in all the nations, that the nations of the world today are shaken once the new covenant is proclaimed they surely are mount calvary shook but the tremors are still reverberating all over the earth the lord is sifting he's sifting for wheat he's panning for gold Haggai 2 and verse 7 says, I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. So the nations will continue to shake and yield up their treasure until the day of the Lord when Christ returns. Well, then things are really going to shake. And that is precisely the way which the writer of Haggai, Haggai himself himself finishes this book. He finishes it with that. The only question then that remains to be answered well, since there's already a whole lot of shaking going on, it's this: where does this wealth, or, or rather, I like the way the ESV translates it, um, where does this treasure of all nations, which fills God's temple, where where does it come from? Where is the gold and the silver in God's temple? Is it behind the piano? Shannon, did you look? Should we bother to look? No. Why? Why why would we not bother to look? Because we see this as a metaphor for gold and silver for something that is very precious. That's why we don't go looking in the corners and the crevices. Also, realize that this treasure of nations, treasure of all nations, it can't fill Israel's second temple. Which King Herod renovated a few years, just a few years before Christ was born. Because the new covenant hadn't been ratified. So pre-Christ, the earth hadn't yet shaken that second time. And though there were articles of gold and of silver employed in the second temple, the treasure of nations had not been brought in until after Christ dies on Calvary, when the heavens and the earth shook. In fact, you, you may disagree with this, it's a peripheral point. I don't think Herod's improvements to the temple were improvements at all nor do I believe they were ever ordained by God. God was silent during the period Herod was dressing this up. I have personally come to believe that, it's my conclusion, that the uh, 46-year effort, well, don't forget this too. King Herod did not serve God's will. Uh, Herod was a murderous Antichrist. He tried to kill the baby Jesus while he was still in the manger. Herod wasn't serving Christ, he was serving himself. Thus, I've arrived at the conclusion that that Herod's 46-year effort at dressing up and dazzling the temple, folks, that was a satanic ploy to retain Israel's authority. Affections toward the temple that physical structure in jerusalem as the birth of christ and the dawn of a new covenant approached satan i believe can't point to a proof text satan i believe motivated herod to dress and dazzle at that old temple all up uh, the glory of herod's temple it became a major competitor and a distraction from the glory of Christ. The Pharisees replied to Jesus, my paraphrase here, oh, so you think you're going to tear that glorious, our glorious temple down? They told him, well, we'll tear you down. And they did. In fact, the nation was, remained so infatuated with, with the grandeur of Herod's temple, they barely noticed when the true Passover lamb was led outside the city of Jerusalem and nailed to a cross on Calvary's mountain. What did they say? What did they cry? Give us Barabbas. Yeah, we'll take Barabbas. Uh, They screamed, we have no king but Caesar. The crowds screamed. "Um, Folks, that, that all occurred as God's Son, Jesus Christ. God's Son, Jesus Christ, was bearing our sin and our shame on a cross. He offered His temple, His body, to be beaten and to be spat upon and to be crucified on a wooden cross. And it was not too many years later that God took care of Herod's temple. I personally believe that those temple enhancements, as I said, uh, they were never sanctioned, uh, nor was God impressed at all with with Herod's opulent renovations. Uh, Christ was never seen wearing silver and gold. Christ didn't come here for that. I don't care about gold or silver either. It's a type of metal. The wealth of nations, the gold and the silver that God declares is mine, which fills his house with glory, uh, has nothing to do with rare earth metals. Describes the souls of the redeemed by the blood of Christ under the new covenant that are so precious to God. So precious to him. Malachi says gold and silver represent people. People who are being purified that they may present to the Lord offerings of righteousness. Malachi also clarifies this gold and silver comes in after the forerunner, John the Baptist. And after the messenger of the covenant visits his temple And after the Lord shakes the heaven and the earth once more on Calvary's mountain. This indicates that the gold and silver comes into God's house during this church age. Our scripture reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 stated that while proclaiming the gospel, uh, we become workers who build God's temple. One plants, another waters. Each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Paul says we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And an apostle, as an apostle, Paul stated, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. And all of us are building on it, foundation of the apostles and prophets. But each man must be careful how he builds on it, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Consider this. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation, By water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her. To be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her. And for her life. He died. Christ is the church's one foundation. Therefore we. The writer of Hebrews says while quoting Haggai, "We have received a kingdom whose foundation cannot be shaken." And we have received this because we wisely obey our Lord with our lives through faith, by not by not building on the sand, but rather we build on the rock of Christ. His oath, His covenant, His blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Amen. built on a solid rock, the church will not be shaken. Now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each man's work will become evident for the day, that is the day of the Lord, will show it because it will be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Wood, hay, and straw are consumed by the fire of God's judgment, while gold, silver, and precious stones are purified and refined by that same fire. Gold and silver and precious stones then represent any lasting work which effectively facilitates the redemption of eternal souls through the proclaiming of the gospel. These precious souls become part of God's temple, which sits upon Christ's foundation that is unshakable. They can no longer be shaken. And we are figuratively building the temple of God with gold and silver every day. By comparison, the wood, hay, and the straw, they're they're the worthless endeavors that we so often get entangled with, we waste our life and resources upon. Verse 16, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Some will lament. But you're, you're spiritualizing the text. Exactly. Exactly. Why? because both Old and New Testaments assure we are building a spiritual temple. It's filled with Jews and Gentiles being refined. It's built, according to Zechariah, not by might. It's not by power. How is the temple built? But by my spirit says the lord of hosts that's how we build a spiritual temple and though we are surely very precious we are not metals we aren't rare earth elements hey guys predicting the shaking of heaven and earth one more time it occurred at the ratifying of the new covenant. A new, and what Hebrews says, is a better covenant by far. But not even a comparison. The blood of Christ versus to the blood of bulls and goats. There is, they're not, it's almost unrighteous to compare the two. Compare the blood of bulls and goats to the blood of Christ. Christ is the greater glory. And verses 6 through 9 ultimately then point to the true treasure that is shaken out of the nations, and that is people who enter into the church by faith in Christ and experience peace and reconciliation with God through the blood of God's Son. This is why God says in verse nine, 9, oh, O the latter glory of this house, will be greater than the former. And in this place I will give peace. That that peace that God gives, it it only comes through the cross. It's the only fount of blessing. No, I'm not breaking out into another song. Something greater than the temple is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. Christ is the greater glory. I don't think this is that hard to understand. But but, what would you think if I told you that some say this passage, passage in Haggai doesn't point to Christ and the giving of the new covenant. And that instead, this passage today remains unfulfilled still. And in order for this prophecy of Haggai to be filled, we must erect another physical temple of stone decked out with gold and silver, literally. And Their defense for that position rests chiefly in the fact this gold and silver must be taken literally. Shipped in from all the nations. Pallets on planes, pallets on trucks, I guess. It's got to be literal, it said. File that for a minute. What if I also told you concerning our earlier passage in Malachi that some will agree... That John the Baptist is the forerunner mentioned and already came in the spirit of Elijah clearing the way for the Messiah but that same messenger of the covenant at least to date still hasn't come to his temple. Rather it is suggested that Malachi's prophecy will not be fulfilled until Christ returns to a another temple one in Jerusalem where Jesus where I guess Jesus can take inventory of all the gold and the silver to make sure that everything is properly accounted for yeah I don't think that's right folks I don't think that's right for one thing when Christ returns he is going to rapture us his invisible temple those who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, he's not going to visit Jerusalem's temple before he begins pouring out his wrath on the earth. Everyone else who has decided they don't want to be part of God's temple. Jesus is not returning a second time to walk into a temple in Jerusalem. That already occurred in 30 AD. And on the day of the Lord, when Christ returns, having gold and silver waiting for him on pallets, it's going to be completely irrelevant. Malachi's prophecy is fulfilled. Because 2 Peter chapter 3 assures that on this same day of Christ's return, the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. That's why pallets of gold and silver are irrelevant. They're elements. All the elements of the earth, including rare earth metals, are going to be destroyed with intense heat, Peter says. But according to his promise, we are looking for a new heaven's and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Folks, Jesus is going to re- recreate after the judgment recreate everything, the whole earth. He's going to use entirely new elements. We don't have to, you know, shuffle a bunch of gold in so he can do something. He can do it. We're mining for something different. And when Christ returns, he's not going to waste any time admiring a stone temple. Decorated with silver and gold and made by human hands. Uh, no, he is rather going to devote his undifi- undivided affection and attention on his bride. That bride which has been cleansed by his precious blood. In 30 AD, Christ suddenly came to visit his temple next he is going to suddenly come for his bride because the church is where the real treasure is folks And this brings us to some real practical application Jesus Christ was never concerned about gold or silver when he walked the earth Uh, neither are Christians First Timothy chapter 2 assures that God wants, you know, women to adorn themselves properly. Modestly and discreetly. Not with hair braided with gold or pearls or costly garments. It means don't be ostentatious. The gold-fingered man, according to the Lord's brother James, you know, the one that, wearing the fine garments... He enjoys no preferred place in God's kingdom. It doesn't matter that he's wearing gold. God has rather chosen even the poor to be rich in faith. So we don't worry about gold and silver. The temple being described with the building materials and qualities, they are like gold and silver. And it speaks to the infinite and eternal value of the redeemed soul that by God's grace will not perish in hell. That's precious. Peter says we're not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished the precious blood of Christ you are a temple of God there is no greater glory than Christ there is no temple that can improve on what Christ has done his sacrifice and that would be returning to the shadow While the substance of Christ is already present in our midst, the Old Covenant was a promise with provisions for Israel based on their obedience. It's a bilateral covenant. Israel repeatedly disobeyed over the centuries, and the writer to the Hebrews uh, assures that ratifying a better covenant, uh, that there has been ratified a better covenant built on better promises. Everything's better. Hebrews also says it renders the old obsolete. Christ is the greater glory. So silver and gold <clears throat> imply something highly valued. Highly valued. We together are silver and gold, or like silver and gold. Christ's bride means so much to him that he gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. Ephesians chapter 5. Silver and gold symbolize value. You want to get practical? All of us, including myself, need to remember to treat Christ's church like his soon-to-be-wed bride. And not a prostitute to be insulted, criticized, used, and discarded when you are, feel that you're done with her. Is that practical? you ever heard anyone say they're, you know, they're just sick and tired of the people at church? Full of hypocrites. I'll sit at home with my Bible by myself. I don't like Jesus' bride. I love Jesus, but I don't like his bride. That isn't going to go well in the judgment. Also, this is very important. Silver and gold gold not only symbolizes value, it also symbolizes a rare commodity. Hard to find. Not easily found, but of enormous value. Should that rarity affect our attitudes when evangelizing? Narrow is the road that leads to life, and there are few who find it. We get that. It's rare. Be never deterred by the reality that gold and silver that belongs to Christ, it's hard to find. Don't be discouraged. Don't be deterred. It's hard to find. You're you're never told that mining for gold and silver is going to be easy. Everybody's pickup truck would be loaded with it. We're not told to expect that mining for God's gold and silver is going to be easy. We're told the payoff is going to be enormous. I'm searching for gold. I'm going for the gold. Do you know what was going through my mind at the the tax office? Because we're in, Ken brings up, this, this season of recognizing our responsibility in winning people to Christ, to build God's temple. You know what went through my mind at the tax office this week when I was renewing my license? When I got out of my truck... I first see a man sitting by the curb. You know what I thought? I think, maybe there's gold sitting here. His name is Zuri. Standing ahead of me once I got inside in line is a man. I thought to myself... Maybe that's gold right there. His name's AJ. When I approached the agent at the counter, what did I ask myself? I wonder if there's gold right there. Her name's Kara. Maybe she's the gold and the silver that belongs to Christ and is very valuable to him. Their names, being practical, are on a prayer card. We'll pray for them on Wednesday evening. Finally, gold and silver are are in the church and uh, they are to be refined into the image of Christ. We're all mid-process, but we are a holy temple. That is what you are. It's built of Jews, built of Gentiles, being purified, 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 and refined like gold and silver, Malachi says, so that we may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. The holy life. It's putting sin away. and we baptize and make disciples teaching them to obey everything that Christ commanded us so whether so so either here's the thing either we are going to see a life change we are either going to see a life change or it is fool's gold can't tell by the naked eye all looks the same but through the refiner's fire and the fuller's soap It will be revealed with testing. Go out, win souls, bring them in, edify, multiply. And then we'll all know. We all know enough in order to witness to others to Christ. Let's pray.